0: you're just gonna come to this idea that you're in the mode of constantly learning and and not to become an expert, but to just be a learner. And that simply itself is the end goal.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City Podcast where the goal is to get better at investing, business and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On this episode of the Investing City Podcast, we have Chathan Putagunta. So Chathan is a partner at Benchmark Capital, one of the most famous VC firms in Silicon Valley, and he's had a great story of just kind of rising through the ranks at a young age. So please enjoy this one. We talk a lot about his first investments, and there are a lot of applicable lessons to public market investors. Please enjoy this one with Chathan Putagunta. Okay, on today's episode of the Investing City Podcast, we're so happy to have Chathan Putagunta. So thanks for being here, Chathan. I'm so
0: happy to be here and do this podcast with you, Ryan. As you know, I think so highly of the work that you're doing. So it's great to, to join this podcast and engage with your audience.
1: Well, geez, thanks so much for saying that. But I just want to start out talking about your very first venture investment, which was MongoDB in 2012. just talk a little bit about the computing ecosystem and what was like the main problem that Mongo really figured out?
0: Absolutely. So one of the things that we often forget that is that the main dominant database for the longest time has been Oracle. And Oracle was founded in 1977 and it became commercially available in 1979. So if you go to 2012, at that time, Oracle was 33 years old. The other dominant database at the time was MySQL, and the initial release of MySQL was in 1995. So MySQL is 17 years old at that time. If you just think about how quickly technology is moving and how quickly infrastructure technology moves today, it's pretty remarkable that a fundamental piece of technology can be so dominant and have such a long run of 33 years in the case of Oracle or 17 years in in the case of MySQL in 2012, And both databases were traditional relational databases that, you know, overly simplified use a concept of columns and rows. And that structure is terrific for a lot of applications. And that's part of the reason why those technologies had such a long run. But in 2012, it became very clear with the advent of mobile, with the web changing, that determining user behavior way before launch as you try to design schema at application development, it became really, really difficult because you didn't know as a developer, what the shape of the data was going to look like once the application had launched. And the other part of it is designing a schema takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of hours to come up with a proper schema, to design a schema for scale. And you do all that, you create your app and you launch it. And what if the app doesn't work? <laughs> And you basically used up all this time to create this great schema, and it didn't matter. What was incredible about MongoDB was it was a completely new database. It was a document-oriented database, unlike a traditional relational database. It uses what's called a JSON-like document structure with a different type of schema than a than a relational database. And what it enabled, which was amazing, was it made the cost of getting started super low. It made the cost of prototyping really low and so what it did then was it brought down the cost of potentially failing way down it meant that if you're an application developer you could get going you know this morning and you could have something as a prototype by this afternoon and you could just try and and that concept of enabling a developer to get things out to to really iterate much faster was something that was incredible, especially for a critical piece of infrastructure technology like a database. So today, you know, we take concepts like agility, continuous release, all of that for granted, but just eight years ago in 2012, these were pretty remarkably new concepts. And so you saw big companies like Google and Facebook do things like agile development and continuous releases and iteration and all of that, but it was about making these concepts available to all developers. So they had figured that out and it was, it was just a remarkable moment in time that they had, had come up with this concept in this database and, and it was awesome to get involved at that time.
1: Yeah, so really helpful background and we'll talk about this more later, but you're on the board of that company. So just curious about any challenges that Mongo faced while really trying to scale and become the big company that they are today. Yeah, you know, Mongo went public in 2017. And one of the advantages
0: that relational databases like Oracle and MySQL had because they were around for so long was that there was a lot of tooling built around those technologies for enterprises to leverage. So the fact that they were around for a really long time meant that there was like lots and lots of complementary technology around that database itself that enabled enterprises to run things very effectively. Mongo, because it was a young company and a young database, had to build all of that tooling around the database themselves and really enable the ecosystem of partners and customers and vendors, all of that, to really mature that ecosystem so that companies and enterprises and developers, could use Mongo in production for mission critical applications for financial applications for consumer applications for core enterprise applications for payment systems, whatever you want so that just took a lot of time, and there was really no way to push it along any faster than to continuously invest in and d and spend a lot of time around the product and what your customers needed to push this database into production and so you know, I think having that singular focus on enabling customers to be successful, delivering value, and understanding that things took time and allowing the company to slowly develop in a very sort of methodical fashion was something that was that was pretty critical. You know, we often think of these companies as happening very quickly, but Mongo, you know, the first lines of Mongo, the database, were were committed, you know, call it 2007. And so, you know, Mongo took 10 years to go from that point to be sort of a, a company that could be in a position to IPO. And so these things tend to take time and they take time to really flush out all the product pr- functionality that enterprises need and all the those core features that enterprises need to run in production. And so just being really patient and being methodical of just marching along those those key requirements that your enterprise customers want and delivering them in a way that, that they can use. Um, and so having that focus, having a great team, all of that came together.
1: Yeah. Super interesting. So I know after Mongo, you invested in MuleSoft and elastic and a lot of other successful startups. Just, I would love to hear some of the lessons that you've really taken away from all these experiences.
0: Well, one, it's really great to be lucky and, and meet incredible entrepreneurs and incredible technologists that, that go about building amazing products. Like, you can't replace that. The main thing that I think, I, you know, you can draw from all of these really successful enterprise software companies is that it takes time. It takes time to build technology that large enterprise customers want to use, in production for critical applications. It takes time to build business use cases. It takes time to understand the core value proposition of the product. And scaling is really hard. And and building human relationships around the customer and the startup, that takes time. It also takes time to scale the company itself. And, And one of the things that we often forget is that scaling a startup involves bringing on lots of new team members and making sure that the company is a great place to work and so time is something that is really hard to replace when you're building a a successful enterprise software company and time and going slowly and doing this in a very methodical fashion is something that's pretty important the second thing again is the product orientation of all of these companies right it was These are technology companies and one of the things that we often forget as software companies start to scale is that we start drive, you know, having a tendency to drive software companies off of a spreadsheet. We'll say, well, you know, your cost of customer acquisition is this, we estimate your LTV to be this, let's hire a whole bunch of salespeople or let's go spend X amount of money on demand generation or marketing or this, that, and the other. And, really forgetting like what was the main reason we got into the business itself, which was that we had a great insight on a brand new technology product. And it's about product development and investing in that technology and being a product led company to scale. And so all of that takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. And I think the main lesson from all of that is that it's really beneficial having time on your side and being really slow at the very beginning to build those trusted relationships with your enterprise customers so that you very quickly become one of their primary and trusted vendors. And, and they, they trust you to not only deliver the initial use case that they've used the product for, but also the adjacent use cases, which then makes sense for, for the company to expand into. And as long as the company continues to be product led and customer oriented, those next use cases and those adjacent use cases then represent amazing expansion possibilities. And so as those expansion possibilities present themselves, then that's how you get really great expansion ratios. That's how you get great renewal rates. That's how you get really good customer efficiency. And so all these things are are pretty critical towards building a large and successful enterprise software company.
1: Yeah, so kind of to go off of that, I think one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs maybe don't think a lot about is how important services revenue is. And you've talked a lot about this and seen that in a couple of your tweets. So just talk a little bit about your thoughts on services revenue and how it's actually really important for software companies in the early days.
0: Services is just a fantastic way for startups, especially enterprise software startups to establish commercial relationships with enterprise customers. So it's a great way for startups to understand exactly how enterprises think about a specific product, a specific use case, how they judge value proposition, what their key sort of business metrics around a product are are all about, you know, Every enterprise customer has a core business. You know, they want to increase revenue through, you know, X service or Y product, or they want to increase gross margins or operating margins or something. They have a goal that they want to accomplish with a product. And engaging the enterprise customer with services in the early days allows a startup to establish a commercial relationship very very early on and establish a a trusted vendor relationship which i think is is pretty critical and what's often forgotten is how many great software companies use services in the early days to then scale software over time and build really really big companies two favorite examples of mine are workday which is now a 40 billion dollar company And Viva, which is at a market cap, a little over $20 billion. An interesting fact about both companies is that at about $60 million of revenue, Workday had 54% of its revenue coming from software and 46% of its revenue coming from services. And at the same point, at the same revenue scale, Viva had 53% of its revenue coming from software and 47% of its revenue coming from services. Now, fast forward when both companies hit $800 million of revenue, Workday had 78% of its revenue coming from software, 22% of its revenue coming from services, and Viva had 81% of its revenue coming from software and 19% of its revenue coming from services. So to recap, when both companies were around $60 million of revenue, they had a 50-50 split between software and services, and when they grew from $60 million to $800 million of revenue and $800 million of revenue, they had an 80-20 software services split. So if you go back and study both of those companies, it becomes very, very clear that they leverage services to establish great relationships with their enterprise customers and then leverage those services relationships and those services contracts to drive software revenue over time. And those are lessons that I think have largely been forgotten in the ecosystem. And those are lessons that are, that are freely available to us to, to understand from. And, and I think that services revenue, therefore, are just a really, really great way to establish trusted customer relationships with large enterprise customers, really understand how they want to use the product, what the primary use case is, what the business value is. And then it enables the startup to engage deeper with software over
1: time. Totally. So just want to switch gears real quick. And I briefly mentioned it earlier, but you've served on a lot of boards now. And I, I want to embarrass you a little bit because a CEO whose board you served on called you the MVP of the board. And then he also said, despite being nearly 20 years younger than everyone else, Chaitan managed to deliver insights no one else had. So tell us your secrets, Chaitan. How are you doing this?
0: Oh, well, those are really nice words. And, you know, we'll keep the, that CEO's name, um, you know, confidential, so not to, to embarrass them. But, you know, it's obviously very great to hear that. And I think one of the things that I've been incredibly lucky to have in my investing career is to be surrounded by really amazing investors from the very early days of my investing career. And on top of that, I've been able to serve on boards with absolutely incredible board members that are venture investors. And top of the list for me is my partner, Peter Fenton who I've been serving on the elastic board for a number of years now, this is, you know, we're coming close on six years that we've served served on that board together. And one of the amazing things that was clear to me that made Peter so incredibly effective was that he came to every single board meeting with an orientation to listen. And he came to every board meeting, not only with that orientation to listen, but he was incredibly prepared for every single board meeting. So that meant Absolutely, of course, the starting place is to review everything that that the company sends your way in terms of board materials and prep materials and stuff like that, but also doing primary research on top of those board materials so that you have even more context of, of all of the things that the company is thinking about. Then coming to the board meeting and having this very clear orientation that I'm here to actively listen to exactly what the company wants to talk about. And what is it that they're not saying? So what is it that the sentiment that, that, that's there between the lines that they're saying and how do you enable the company and the company's team members and executive team to create a space in that board meeting for them allowed for them to express all of that so that you really understand exactly what the company is excited about, what they're anxious about, and really understanding the full situation of the company at any given time. I think that's a a skill that takes a lot of time to refine, and it takes a lot of practice, frankly, and it's not an easy exercise, and it takes just a lot of investment of time ahead of every board meeting to prepare, to really, really understand what's going on in these businesses and what's really going on with customers, what's really going on with the product, what's really going on with understanding how that startup is scaling. And so, so it's, it was really, really amazing and absolutely awesome for me to be surrounded by fantastic board members from the moment I started in my venture career. And I just learned a lot from that. And so, so it really sounds quite simple when you step back and you just say, well, all you have to do is really invest a lot of time to prepare and and show up to every meeting with this active listening idea. But practicing that just, just takes a lot of investment, takes a lot of practice and and can be hard at times. And one of the other things that is also important to remember is that it's not necessary as a board member to opine on everything. It's okay to not have an opinion. It's okay to simply listen, absorb, consider and then go off and do additional research before forming an opinion. And so, understanding that you know, everything takes a lot of preparation, every decision needs to be carefully considered, every, you know, item on the agenda is is the company really trying to communicate something to the board and paying attention and investing the requisite time to form a really good, informed, objective opinion? And then also realizing that you can be wrong. You can be, you know, you can do all this research, you can do all this preparation, you can do all this listening, and then come to a conclusion that just, you know, you're wrong, and that's okay. And, and, and also understand that, Ultimately, the the leadership team that is running the company, you brought them on to run the company, to enable them to do the job that they've come on to do, and how do you effectively enable them to go about doing what they're there to do and, and stepping back and trusting them and enabling them to be super effective? So. It's a it's a combination of all of these things, which by themselves, you know, sounds pretty simple and pretty easy. But putting it all together just takes a lot of time and practice. And it's something that, you know, I continue to work on. And in that mission of being a great board member, you're never actually done getting better at it. And so it's something that requires constant and continuous investment.
1: Hmm. So you mentioned a few times being really good at active listening is very important. So are there any resources or any tips that you would give people to improve their listening skills?
0: Yeah. You know, you, you know this because of the interactions we've had over time that I spend a lot of time studying public companies and you know, that I spend a lot of time listening to public company earnings calls and this is something that I do as, as a hobby for fun. Even though I'm an, an early stage technology company investor, you know, I'm spending all this time listening to public company earnings calls. And, and part of the reason why I do that is because it's, it offers a really great mode to practice exactly this, right? Um, one of the things that I think is, is taken for granted or perhaps not widely appreciated is that when public companies um, every quarter give an earnings call, they're literally conducting their business in public and they're telling these great software analysts exactly how they're going about their business and how they're thinking about the strategy of their business, the competition they face, the new products they want to invest in, the new markets they want to enter, all this stuff they're talking about in these earnings calls and i really would encourage every, everybody that's like interested in learning this to just log on and listen and when you're listening to these great super accomplished executives going through their business and talking about it and how they're thinking about strategy, how they're thinking about products, etc it gives you a really great opportunity to practice this active listening this idea of how do you really pay attention to what they're saying and one of the great things about an earnings call is that you can't interrupt and you can't really say anything. And all you're doing is purely listening and taking notes. And so um, I find it to be a really great exercise that I that helps me continue to refine that skill of being an active listener. And so it's something that I spend a lot of time doing. And I think it's, it's just a freely available resource to everybody. And I, and I really encourage everyone to, to think about using that to to practice
1: yeah i love that so just talk a little bit about your process of studying public companies is there a structure you use how do you decide on the next company you look at so just talk a little bit about that no it's it's you know i
0: I joke that the that i get a lot of joy of studying software companies and literally the manual process of of studying the software companies is, is frankly part of the joy for me. And so I don't really have much of a structure other than, you know, the largest companies in enterprise software are companies that I tend to track. And what's amazing is that every quarter they put out earnings and they come out and they usually give an earnings presentation. They usually do an earnings call. They, talk about the future of the business, they talk about what's going well inside their business. And so there's really no other structure that I use other than simply just listening and absorbing and, and reading and studying and, and understanding what's going on. And these earnings calls and these earnings presentations are really interesting as companies begin to embark on new product strategies, or thinking about pivoting around new markets. And what's really cool, at least what I find to be really cool, is that when companies go about thinking about new strategies, they do a ton of homework and they have, you know, a ton of deep thinking around how they're going to justify this new move, and they, you know, talk about that in their earnings calls and their earnings presentations and stuff like that. And so, it's just getting a window into a different part of the software ecosystem that I think. Is, it's just really great and it's a free educational resource that's that's available to everybody and and so it's it's something that I use to simply educate myself on what's happening in, in the broader ecosystem not necessarily for some sort of end goal or not you know for some objective but simply for the pursuit of continuing to learn and continuing to just purely learning more about software and how other really great, smart, accomplished people are thinking about the industry itself and just continuing to learn from that and having an orientation towards that, that idea of you're just going to come to this idea that you're in the mode of constantly learning and, and not to become an expert, but to just be a learner. And that simply itself is the end goal. And so it's something that I really, really enjoy.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting that your identity is constantly learning versus expert. You kind of get to a point where you feel that identity. You have to prove it almost. Yeah, it's super interesting. So is there anything as you've been studying these public companies that has really surprised you or something that you've come across recently that is super interesting?
0: For me, you know, I've been tweeting a lot about the large uh, cloud players. and. You know, what's been really interesting to me is just watching how the public cloud providers between Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure and Google's cloud platform have really been evolving. And one of the things that's been amazing is that these three cloud infrastructure providers are now all over $10 billion of revenue run rate. So Amazon's at a $40 billion revenue run rate growing, you know, 34% annually. Azure is at about 20 billion run rate, growing 62% annually and accelerating. Google Cloud is at about $10 billion run rate, growing 53% annually and accelerating. Um, you know, What's pretty incredible is that you have two companies in Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure that are both at scale and that are actually accelerating growth at really large scale. I think it's really fascinating and has been something that I've just been really curious about. And one of the things that was particularly interesting, um, you know, going back to earnings calls and learning from earnings calls is in the last Google earnings call, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about Google Cloud and Google Cloud Platform and how much they're investing because they see themselves as a challenger in that market. And a couple of things that they talked about was how they've tripled their sales team, for example, in the last three years, or how the number of deals, enterprise deals that they have that are over $50 million, has grown 2x. I mean, just think about that for a second $50, $50 million enterprise contract growing over 2x. I mean, that's it's a completely new enterprise motion to get such large deals. For an enterprise platform, and you know, they talked about how they have a backlog of a little over eleven billion dollars going into 2020, and so, you know, like that, on ten and a half billion dollars of revenue run rate, they've got basically an eleven point four billion in backlog already booked going to the next year. So that's so you just read all that, and you can take a step back, and what you then start to realize is that these cloud markets. And the appetite for cloud and the appetite for a new way to think about an enterprise infrastructure is probably a lot larger than anybody anticipated, you know and it's probably happening at a rate that is quite a bit faster than than maybe what most people are expecting or assuming. and so really understanding these growth rates, really understanding how these dynamics are, are Happening in these cloud infrastructure providers has been has been super educational for me and has frankly been at times surprising.
1: Yeah, that's just crazy scale to think about in terms of all those cloud players. So talk a little bit about other ways that you stay on top of things and kind of going back to that infinite learning mentality. What are some other things you do besides studying public companies?
0: Yeah, I think there are two things that I've recently embraced and perhaps not so recently embraced one is is twitter and how it really enables you to learn in public and i know you do that a lot and 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 we met on twitter so so it's a it's a great avenue to meet really interesting people that are thinking about some of the same interesting problems that you're perhaps contemplating and so twitter enabling you to learn in public and sort of have those interactions with people that are researching the same type of things that are looking into the same type of things. You know, I've learned a lot from the people that I've met through Twitter that, that are experts in perhaps enterprise software, perhaps experts in scaling public companies that then they also start sharing publicly through Twitter. And so it's a, it's a just a, a great way to learn in public. And, and that's a new motion that, that I've started to really pick up and and I've enjoyed quite a lot. The other thing that that I've done for quite some time, and the mentors that I've had in investing have, you know, is something that I've observed them do, which is that they've always done a really good job of meeting with and understanding the angles that new people that are entering the industry are seeing. So what I mean by that is like the young people that come into an investing sector, whether it be public investing or private investing, tend to have a new way to look at the market itself, the market of investing, if you will, in deploying new techniques of identifying opportunities or identifying entrepreneurs or identifying companies. And I think it's it's always really, really interesting to understand those new types of angles of attack and understanding sort of those new angles of, of identifying new opportunities, and you tend to learn surprising lessons. And, and you know that I've enjoyed conversing with you and talking to you about how you're thinking about building your own business around, you know, the public markets and public investing. And, and as people just get started and try to establish themselves in these, in these investing markets, they start coming up with insights that I think you miss as you think of yourself as an expert in something. And, you know, as you become a, a new entrant in a market, this, is, this applies to software companies as well as individuals, is that, you know, when you enter a new market, you think about concepts aggressively and you think about investing aggressively. And, and you know, this is like, this is basically like the innovator's dilemma applied at, a, at an individual level, but I think there's just a simply a lot to learn by meeting and understanding sort of those new, new folks entering an investing market and, and really understanding how they're thinking about the different ways to approach the business itself. And so, um, so learning in public via Twitter and, and really understanding sort of the, the opportunities um, of how the investing landscape is gonna, is gonna change by meeting with and talking with the people that are starting to build their practice are, are two ways that, that I enjoy you know, to make sure that I'm constantly learning
1: yeah so that that's so interesting talking about innovators dilemma at a personal level and i've never really thought about it that way but i think it takes a lot of humility to even think like that so that's that's really awesome so just one last question that i'd like to ask everybody what are some daily habits that have really contributed to your success maybe besides studying public companies
0: <laughs> yeah i mean You know, I've been super lucky throughout my professional career to be surrounded by amazing mentors. And I think one of the things that, that, that is great about having wonderful mentors is that you quickly realize the generosity that, that people are willing to put forth towards investing time in helping you if you just continue to invest in those relationships. And, you know, there's no, certainly no expectation of any kind of return or benefit or anything like that. But just that human relationships of, of mentorship that sort of goes through the investing ecosystem, whether it's mentors that are older or more experienced or mentors that are younger and new to an industry, like mentors come in, you know, there's there's mentors that then are also peers. And so thinking about the landscape in terms of like the availability of the number of mentors that that are available to you that you can constantly learn from is something that i like to invest a lot into and i think about kind of every day and it's and i've just been incredibly fortunate unbelievably lucky to be surrounded by you know just really amazing investors throughout my entire career that have just been amazingly generous to me and i've just learned so much from them and you know as an example just the partners that i work with every single day bill peter sarah and eric I'm constantly learning from them. They're constantly pushing me to think of new ways to think about a problem, to think new ways to think about an enterprise software company, whatever it may be. And so just the, the number of mentorship relationships that I, that I like to invest in, something that, that I think about every day.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome way to end this. And just want to thank you so much for your time, Jason. really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, Ryan, it was an honor to be on this podcast and excited to engage with your audience.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City Podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.